Our Old Testament reading today comes from Genesis chapter 41. We'll be reading two sections, verses 1 through 16, 24 through 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows in the banks of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, and the thin ears swallowed up the plump ears, plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each of us having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when, he told, and when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what is about, he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will, be seven, there will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him up over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh 
for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning. And before we turn to this text, as we uh, continue through the life of, of Joseph, let us turn together to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your scripture. We thank you for the truths that it proclaims. We thank you for the gospel of Christ Jesus that it proclaims. And I pray, Lord, that all that follows would be faithful and true to your intentions to this passage and that you would apply, Lord, the truths of these passages to our head, to our hands, to our hearts. It's in Christ's name that we pray and the power and the efficacy of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, you know, as you can tell, as, as we've been working through the life of Joseph, we encounter in this passage a very surprising turn of events. We find that two years have passed since Joseph uh, interpreted the dream of the cupbearer in prison, and the cupbearer has long forgotten about Joseph's request that he mention Joseph to Pharaoh. But here in this passage, something happens. Pharaoh has two connected, two related dreams one night. He dreams of, of seven plump cows that are devoured by seven thin and ugly cows. He wakes up. He dreams again of seven plump ears of grain that are then devoured by seven thin and blighted ears of grain. Pharaoh awakes from these dreams and he is troubled. He shares his dreams with his wise men and with his magicians, but no one can give an interpretation. And it's in this silence that the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph. And he recalls to Pharaoh how Joseph interpreted his dream two years before in the prison. Pharaoh then calls for Joseph, and Joseph comes to Pharaoh's court. He listens to Pharaoh's dream, and then Joseph says this. The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And take note here of the confidence that Joseph displays. It's not a confidence in himself, but a confidence in the Lord. Joseph sees how God has essentially forced the cupbearer to make good on his promise of mentioning Joseph. Again, God has opened a door for Joseph by way of the need for interpreting dreams. Joseph knows without a doubt that God has brought all of these things about. And so Joseph can speak with confidence in the interpretation that God has given to him. Joseph, through all of his extremely hard circumstances that we've so far traced, Joseph has come to learn that God plans and he orchestrates all that comes to pass. 
And so Joseph, when he's before Pharaoh, he can confidently declare that the seven plump cows and the seven plump ears of grain, they represent seven years of plenty that will be followed by seven years of famine. And those seven years of famine, again, represented by the seven thin cows and the seven ears, thin ears of grain. This is what God will do. And this must direct what Pharaoh will do in response. And so Joseph gives Pharaoh the following advice. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Joseph goes on to instruct Pharaoh what wisdom and discernment should look like here. He instructs him to take one-fifth of the produce of the land during each of those seven years of plenty and store it up. Store it up as a food supply during those seven following years of famine. This plan pleases Pharaoh and his servants. Each of them sees the wisdom in it. And to be sure, Pharaoh would certainly have received a very good report of Joseph from the jailer, hearing about Joseph's good and wise administration. And so in light of all of these things taken together, Pharaoh says this to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Joseph was sold into slavery at 17, and he spent the last 13 years in unjust captivity and imprisonment. And now, at age 30, he becomes second only to Pharaoh in the very land where one minute before... He was a slave. This is a very surprising turn in this story of exile. But here's the thing. It is still exile. Joseph's change of rank and status in Egypt, they don't change the fact that he is still in Egypt in exile. As we talked about in an earlier sermon, Scripture tells us that exile just is the basic human condition in between Eden and the resurrection. We were kicked out of our good home of Eden, and we await the full homecoming of the resurrection. For now, we are in exile. In the Joseph narrative, we encounter for the first time what will be an enduring theme throughout Scripture— a kind of forced exile into a foreign land. But again, in Scripture, exile is a bigger category than this. And the topic of exile actually frames the whole book of Genesis. Again, in in Genesis 3, we find our exile from Eden, and the book of Genesis will actually end with a kind of exile of God's people in Egypt. Their time in Egypt is not all bad, but neither is it all good. God's people, as we will see, will get some benefits from this, especially land and food. But they will also find themselves at the mercy of Egyptian public opinion. And if you go on to the book of Exodus, very soon this opinion will turn against them. In Egypt, Joseph and his family are neither homeless nor are they fully at home. This is the state of biblical exile not being homeless, and not being fully at home. And similarly, in our exile from Eden, 
in our lives, in our lives here, in our lives in this city, there is still much good. We are not homeless, but neither are we fully at home. Joseph's rise to leadership in Egypt, it doesn't change this basic fact. However, it does show us this. It it shows us ways of living faithfully in exile. And here's a key question that this passage helps us answer. How are the people of God to live rightly in the societies of this world? Societies in which they are not homeless, but neither are they fully at home. And so let's attempt to answer this question by looking at this passage under three headings. Common goods, the greatest good, and the foundational good. Let's look at each of those in turn, and and let's start with common goods. As we said each week, the the key verse for interpreting the Joseph narrative is is Joseph's own words, hard-earned words of wisdom that he shares, that he tells his brothers near the end of his life. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And as we talked about before, this truth of you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, it actually applies to the whole of the Joseph narrative. But of course, it also applies to the specific situation that Joseph is here mentioning, keeping many people alive by way of food through a severe famine. Everything that happened to Joseph has led him to being put in the very place that we find him in today's passage. He has become a man of of character and consequence. He's learned to love and to trust and to know the Lord who is with him in exile. He refuses to sin against the Lord. He's learned skills and competencies of leadership and administration, both in the house of Potiphar and also in the prison. Through the orchestration of God, he has become known as a man who, by the gifting of God, can interpret dreams. And now Joseph is here placed before the ruler of Egypt, the ruler of Egypt who desperately needs him. Pharaoh needs his dreams interpreted, which Joseph alone can do because of God's gifting. Pharaoh needs a wise administrative response which Joseph can uniquely offer because of his previous 13 years of administration in Potiphar's house in the prison. Pharaoh needs an official that he can trust. And at this point, there is no one more virtuous or more trustworthy in Egypt than Joseph. And all of this comes together to work many goods. And one of these goods is this. Again, in the words of Joseph, that many people should be kept alive. Joseph recognizes this as a good. And certainly, as we see in this passage, Pharaoh and his servants recognize this as a good as well. As those who are tasked with ruling Egypt, they certainly realize the good of keeping their people alive through food. Working to ensure that people are properly fed, especially during a famine, this is a common good. It's a good that everyone here rightly sees and recognizes as a good. Working to make sure that people have the food that they need is a kind of good conduct that we should expect from ruling authorities and 
citizens. For instance, in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul tells us this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And this is not to say there are no violations here or that the Christian is always meant to submit to the governing authorities. Paul himself will disrupt the Roman status quo, and Christian tradition tells us that he will be executed in Rome because of this. But still, even in this very real mix of injustices, the Roman government brought about many common goods for its people. I don't mean to be tongue-in-cheek here, but there's a Monty Python scene where an anti-Roman revolutionary, he says this, Apart from sanitation, medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a freshwater system, and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? (laughs) And we can relate. All of these things are common goods that all people, whether Christian or not, recognize and appreciate as goods. Or to, to cite a more venerable example, even Augustine in his city of God. He calls the Roman Empire one of the more virtuous examples of the cities, the earthly cities, that the world has known. And he's he's speaking comparatively here, of course. Yes, Paul and Augustine, they're in exile in the Roman Empire, but they still insist that good conduct is to be expected from the governing authorities and the citizens. And that's true whether or not they are Christian. In the same way, Joseph expects the Egyptian rulers that they will act in good conduct, working to keep many people alive amidst a severe famine. This is a common good that all persons, all persons, can and should recognize as a good. And this truth is rooted in the doctrine of creation. There is a natural order that we cannot help but see and conform to in some way. Yes, we have all fallen into sin, but we have to be careful here not to give sin too much weight. And yes, this is a Presbyterian pastor saying this. Sin has absolutely corrupted our human nature. In fact, it has corrupted our every human faculty. But sin has not made our humanity, our human nature, something wholly different. We are still human. To say otherwise would be to say that sin has actually fully undone and uncreated what God has made. And this exalts sin too high at the expense of God. As Paul himself tells us in Romans 2, even the Gentiles, those without the special revelation of God, Gentiles like the Egyptians of Joseph's time, Gentiles like the Romans of Paul's time, Even they have the law of God written on their hearts and established in their conscience. This is just part of being human. And it is so deep in our nature that even our sinful hearts cannot wholly suppress it. All of us, by nature, whether Christian or not, know that we are called to good conduct. Whether or not we follow that call. And so, Pharaoh and his servants rightly recognize the common good of feeding their people. 
And common goods like this just are the basis of our common, common life together in our earthly cities and our earthly societies. Because all people share and recognize so many common goods, we can serve, we can strive to serve and to love our cities and communities amidst our exile with all people, whether or not they are Christian. The Christian writer Jake Nidor, he puts this well. This is, this is a bit of a long quote, but it's, it's a good quote. He writes this. The possibility of persuasion in a healthy pluralism is intrinsically dependent on the idea that two neighbors can access the same reality. If there is no shared reality, there is no basis for shared reasoning. This, then, is why we need a firm commitment to the idea that there is such a thing as a natural order that can be observed and understood. Apart from it, we will be condemned to the very thing we are now experiencing in the Western world cloistered off communities, unable to talk to one another, or even to understand one another, for they have nothing in common about which to talk. Nidor is saying this, to reject the reality of the natural order and the common goods that it calls all people to, this is to reject any hope of shared reasoning and purposes among all of the different peoples that make up our earthly cities. Without a natural created order, without a created order that we can all observe and follow, then there really is no basis for our shared life together, for our shared goods, for our shared projects and goals, for shared ethics, for shared relationships, for any sharing at all. If there is no order out there, then order is only something that each person arbitrarily imposes upon the world. Even amidst exile, all people, both Christian and non-Christian, can and should recognize the basic goods of the human life. This is why, for instance, we value our partnerships with organizations in the city that seek to serve those in need. This is why all doctors, Christian or otherwise, are rightly expected to seek the health and the flourishing of their patients. This is why all teachers, Christians or otherwise, are rightly called, rightly expected, to seek the education and flourishing of their students. This is why all farmers, Christian or otherwise, are rightly expected to seek a good harvest that will provide nourishment for many. In fact, one key way for the church to gain a hearing is by showing the rest of our society how deeply it cares about the needs of our community. It's often because those outside of the church see the good conduct of the church in meeting these needs, that they are willing and curious to hear the proclamation of the church. Christ himself tells us that people will know that we are his disciples because of our love for one another. So well are Christians called to love one another that this love should stand out and be immensely compelling to those who are outside the church. But this love would not be attractive and it would not be compelling to non-Christians unless they recognize the deep good of loving the neighbor. This love of love is a deep truth of human nature that creation proclaims to all of us. And this is, this is just one example that points us to what the Christian tradition has called natural law or what Augustine calls the voice of nature. And so, like Joseph, we are called to work 
called to work for the common goods of our society, even in our current state of exile. Christians are called to love their neighbors as themselves and to work for common goods such as food and safety and sanitation and education and health, to name only a few. This is what Joseph does here in this passage, and this is what each of us are called to do. This, as Midor tells us, this is the basis for our shared life together in exiles, as exiles, as we live and work with all kinds of people in our city. And that takes us to our second point, the greatest good. However, there is still a key Christian distinction here, and we see it in the present passage. Yes, Joseph seeks to serve the society that he's in. We even see Joseph take an Egyptian wife, and, and that's in a portion of chapter 21 that we weren't able to read before the sermon. But the names of his children, born to him and his wife, they reveal Joseph's enduring love for the Lord and the enduring reality of his exile. He names one son Manasseh. And the name Manasseh communicates the meaning, quote, God has made me forget all my hardships in all my father's house. He names the other son Ephraim. And that communicates this meaning. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And so we see Joseph attributes everything that has happened to God's orchestration. It is God who has given him reprieve from his hardships. And yes, God has made Joseph fruitful here in Egypt, but notice that he still refers to Egypt as the land of my affliction. Yes, his status in Egypt has changed, but Egypt has not. His circumstances have changed, but this basic human condition of exile has not. This is not his home. This is the land of his affliction. Again, this is the dynamic of exile, not being homeless, yet not being fully at home. This is why he will make his brothers swear to him that the people of God will take his bones away from Egypt when the people of God go into the promised land. But how could a place that shares so many common goods also be a land of alienation and exile and affliction? And this takes us back to the topic of, of good and evil. And, and these are concepts that we've constantly identified as key concepts in the Joseph narrative. And let's turn again to Paul and again to his letter to the Romans. Remember that in chapter 13, Paul speaks of the good conduct that we should expect both from governing authority and all citizens. And yet, in Romans 3, Paul writes this, and, and he does so in interaction both with Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Paul writes, None is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so we have to ask, how is it that we're supposed to reconcile this passage Romans 3, with Romans 13. Can we be good or can we not be good? Paul, make up your mind. Is it true that no one is good and no one seeks God? Or is it true that we should expect a good conduct from everyone? But notice here. Notice Paul's reasoning in Romans 3. 
He tells us that no one is good because no one seeks God. The reason no one is good, not even one, is because no one seeks God, the very greatest good. In Romans 1, Paul tells us that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We talk about this a lot, right? Creation is good, all of it. God has not created anything bad or evil. Sin is not loving a bad thing. No, it is loving a good thing in the wrong way, loving it as only God himself should be loved. To sin, to sin is to love a true good, but a lesser good as your greatest good. The act of sin is a deficient and disordered mode of love. How does this relate to Joseph's situation? Well, let me make this connection by way of an example that I've, I've used before. Imagine the following scenario. You're at a huge university lecture, and, and afterwards, you want to conquer your fear of public speaking, so you plan to come to the mic and publicly ask a question to the person who has just presented. You're trying to grow in courage, but only for the sake of courage. Nothing higher or nothing greater. You are simply trying to overcome your fear of public speaking. In this case, courage is the highest good that you are seeking. However, imagine the same scenario, but in this case, after listening humbly and thoughtfully to the speaker, you believe that the speaker has said something that is unjust. You have a deep fear of public speaking, but you, you, you force yourself to overcome this fear for the sake of justice. You exercise your courage. You come to the microphone and you ask a probing question for the sake of justice. This is true courage because it is ordered and directed to justice. In this case, the good of courage is ordered to the greater good of justice. In this case, courage is what we call the proximate good, and justice is the ultimate good. We practice courage here in order to practice justice. And a basic and traditional definition of justice is, is this, giving persons what they are due. Giving persons what they are due. In the second example, you are overcoming your fear with courage to make sure that some person or position which has been unfairly represented is given the proper due. Here, the good of courage is rightly ordered to the higher and greater good of, of justice. But here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Is justice, the state of each person in a society getting what they deserve, is this the greatest good of all? And here we have to answer, no. The greatest good of all is God himself. Does this mean that justice isn't important? No, no, no. It is very important. But the essential good of justice must be ordered to the greatest good of God. We should love the good of courage because we love the good of justice. And we should love the good of justice because we love God. What we have here is a kind of ladder going from lesser goods to greater goods. And God alone should be, must be, at the top of this ladder. With this framework in mind, we're able to sort out Paul's statements. 
In Romans 13, Paul is speaking of governing authorities in terms of proximate goods. In this case, justice. The governing authorities are expected to promote justice in society, giving people what is due to them. For example, the governing authorities and citizens, they're expected to order the goods of food and sanitation, healthcare, education, commerce, courage to the good of justice. Joseph and Pharaoh are on the same page here. They both agree that immediate action must be taken to preserve the good of food for the flourishing of the people. The good of food is being ordered to the shared good of justice. This is the good conduct that Paul expects from everyone. However, in our fallen and corrupted hearts, no one seeks God as their very greatest good. In fact, Paul tells us that we all, in our sin, suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Without God's saving grace, we cannot climb all the way up the ladder, for example, from courage to justice to God. Without God's saving grace, the best that we can do, like Pharaoh, is come to the proximate good of justice. On the one hand, societally speaking, Paul expects good conduct from all persons, conduct that is ordered to the essential but proximate good of justice. On the other hand, theologically speaking, no one is good, and we all sin because no one seeks God above all else. No one orders all the other goods of human life, courage or justice, career, family, friendships, resources. No one rightly orders them to God, the very greatest good. We all put some other good at the top of that ladder. And what does this have to do with exile? Quite a bit. It is the goods that we share that bring us together. Augustine tells us that a people, a community, is a group of persons who come together by sharing the good things that they love. The greater the good that they share in love, the greater the community. The lesser the good, the lesser the goodness of the community. Think about it like this. If you go to a Hawkeyes game, there is a community of people all gathered together because of their shared love for the Hawkeyes. Everything they do in the stadium, from cheering to talking about the the season with other fans to, to voicing their frustration about some call or some play, all of these are ways that they form a community around their shared love. And in fact, these actions are ways that they share their love of the Hawkeyes with one another. And Augustine, he wants us to see whole cities like this, whole cities as communities of shared loves. And Augustine tells us that the city of man, all of the cities of this world, they're formed around true goods. We've seen that. But the lesser proximate goods of this life, they are not the city of God. And at best, as with Pharaoh in this passage, They can be gathered around the shared love of justice. In Pharaoh's case of of ensuring that people get the food they need in a terrible famine. And this is good. This is important. But this will not take us all the way up the ladder to God. The city of God is that one community 
where the shared love of God brings people together. Yes, the cities of this world are cities that are formed by the shared love of truly good things. But the good things are lesser than God. Egypt here comes together around the good, shared love of justice. And we too should strive to make our cities and communities and countries do the same. Societally speaking, as per Romans 13, the city should be a place of good conduct. Like Joseph, we are not homeless here. There is much good here. And so when working for the good of the city, when you're working with non-Christians for the good of the city, ask yourselves, what is the highest proximate good that we can share together? How high can we climb the ladder of goods together? What is the greatest common good that we can share? And the Christian is called to be a very important voice here, especially, especially in a divided society where the either-or, the either-or of political parties, rather than the common good of justice for all people, where it constrains and it shrinks our notion of justice. For instance, consider the book Compassion and Conviction. It's, It's put out by the Anne Campaign, and it's meant to be a kind of primer on Christian civic engagement. And it calls us to reject the either-or questions that lead us to give justice only to some and not to others. The authors pose these false alternatives. Do you advocate social justice or family values? Do you support women or are you against abortion? Do you love the poor or do you believe in personal responsibility? The authors then advise their readers like this. Don't answer those questions or at least not in the way that they're asked. They're based on a false premise and thus create a false dilemma for Christians. This is what happens when we allow the world to frame the questions and the issues for us. The Christian, the Christian must work to ensure that justice is given to all through good institutions and strong families, for women and mothers and all children, whether born or unborn, for the poor and the marginalized, all the while honoring and respecting the agency and responsibility of all persons. In doing this, we seek the common good that Paul expects of all citizens and authorities. In all of these ways, we, like Joseph and Pharaoh, are working together to preserve life. However, we have to remember amidst this good and necessary striving that we are still in exile. And theologically speaking, as per Romans 3, all endeavors not ordered to the love of God, all our endeavors like this are sin. This is the nuance of the Christian life in exile. We live in cities where truly good things can and should be sought but where the very greatest good, God, is not. The church alone is that human community ordered to and formed around the shared love of God. And so that also means that it is here with the people of God that we should feel most at home as we await the full coming of the city of God at the return of Christ. 
And friends, the people that you are right now sharing this room with, they are the very people that you will be rejoicing with together in the joy of God for all of eternity. If you do not love them now and share the love of God with them now, you are working against the consummation of the city of God. And that brings us to our third and final point, the foundational good. There's a final question that we have to ask here. If justice is giving persons what they are due, where does God fit into all of this? Well, Augustine tells us this. True justice exists only in the republic whose founder and ruler is Christ. We cannot deny that this true justice is a common good of a people. And the people that he's referring to here, this is the people of God. And why is it that the justice of Christ alone is true justice? Well, Augustine tells us that the city of man does not do its proper justice to God. It does not love and obey and honor God as it ought. It does not give the greatest being of all his proper due. And this is supreme injustice. Again, this is why no one does good. It's because no one seeks God. But if we have been unjust to God, the greatest good himself, then we justly deserve the greatest punishment. But here we confront the true and the surprising justice of Christ Jesus, the justice that should turn our hearts together in love for God. Who is Christ? He is God the Son become human to live the perfect life of love and justice before God and before every single neighbor. Who is Christ? He is the perfect justice of God who gives to us the status of his own perfect justice and who takes from us the penalty and the punishment of our own great injustice against him. Who is Christ? He's the justice and mercy and love of God perfectly united. He is the just God who mercifully takes the penalty of his unjust people upon himself to uphold his own perfect justice. And Christ alone is the founder of the city of God, that city founded upon the love of God. And all that the church is, all that the church does, is a response to what Christ has already done for us on our behalf and I invite you to enter this city by faith in Christ. I invite you to rest in Christ's salvation and grow in this city as we praise and glorify and adore the glory of Christ together. Again, this just is practice and preparation for the great homecoming of life eternal. At present, the church is our, our home away from home. It's our home away from home as we together await the end of our exile, as we rest in the certain hope of one day truly being at home in this world, wholly redeemed and wholly restored. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you have given to us. We thank you, Lord, for all of the goods that we share together. We thank you for the good gifts of this life. And most of all, we thank you for the good gift of your Son, Christ Jesus. Help us to rest and receive him more fully. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.